Um, so this is a new one. This is a new class. Um, so it, there might be some snags in it, and, and you're going to need your help in sorting those snags out. Um, this is a class about halakha and new technology or new technologies. Um, the reason that I think this is an interesting way to look at halakhic literature is that there's something special about a new technology that really exposes the way that rabbis operate when creating halakha in a way that other kinds of halakhic material do not. Um, and that is because um, new technologies appear on the scene suddenly, and they are clearly and definitely new. Like a lot of times when we talk about halakha and halakhic change, we're talking about, you know, did the fact that rabbis were now living in urban settings, did that change the way they thought about halakha? And that's like a difficult question to answer. There's all, you can always say, you know, yes, based on the, the answers they come to, or no, like really they're just applying sources. But when something's like really new, like when something's like actually never been here before, like it's clear that the rabbis have to be dealing with it um, and grappling with it in a really real way. Um, so this is like a, a pretty important opportunity that we have, um, and really like the sources that I've given you are mostly from the past century, um, to kind of get into the mind of rabbis who are trying to create halakha. Um, you really can't use a kind of halakhic arithmetic to arrive at the solutions here. Um, the other part about this is that because changes in technology happen quickly, um, you get to see kind of the development of the reaction over time. So the first source we're going to look at is electricity. So how do the rabbis react to electricity when it first appears? And how do they, how do they react to it 50 years later? And how do they react to it today? Um, and we'll see that there's some development um, in the way that rabbis react to halacha. And technology is really helpful in getting a sense of like changes in rabbinic reactions to something which like, you can pinpoint like it started this moment in time. Um, the other reason that I think that uh, new technology is an important thing to look at is that we started uh, way back in one of the first classes uh, with talking about forms, norms, and values as the three uh, kind of principles that one should be looking for when reading halakhic material. And when you look at sources that are talking about new technology, you really get a sense of how those different things play out, especially because very often with new technologies, it's totally unclear what the value should be. Because it's just so new, it's never existed as part of any kind of culture, so you never get a sense of how it plays out in relation to the rest of the world, or even what kinds of halakhic questions will come up in the first place. So uh, you end up getting a lot of discussions which appear very formal just because there's nothing else to go on yet. Um, or you can also get uh, discussions which really delve into like projected values, like, well, we think that this technology is going to play out in this way, and therefore we'll react to it like this, uh, whether that's warranted or not, um, which is the same thing that everyone does with new technology, like try to speculate on how it will change our lives forever. Um, so for all those reasons, new technology is great to look at, and also, like, there's something like, just really fun in looking at sources that talk about, you know, lab-grown meat. Um, I don't know why. Maybe it's not fun for you. It's fun for me. Um, and that's why I put together the source like this. Uh, what I do want to get to with all of this, though, is I, I want you to walk away from today not thinking about halakha, about new technology, as like its own separate category of halakha, but rather at the, the kind of the extreme edge of the way that all halakha operates. The rabbis that we're going to be looking at don't say, well, you know, this is new technology, so like I'm going to treat it differently. They treat it like they treat everything else. And so really all this is is an opportunity for us to look at one you know, one uh, kind or one subset of halakhic literature that I think uh, sheds light on everything else. So it's, it's really helpful pedagogically, and hopefully this works out well. So, okay, technologies.
Can you think of some examples without looking? Okay, if you look at your source sheets, then, then examples that are not on your source sheets, and if you haven't looked at the source sheets, then examples that may be on the source sheets. Can you think of examples of situations where rabbis, um, where halakhic literature has had to grapple with new technologies in any period of history, modern or otherwise? Like a specific technology that they've grappled with. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. I feel like these aren't on the sheets, but okay. like I guess the printing press and the telegraph when Great. they first uh, Super. came on the scene. Yeah. If you remember, like actually one of the classes we looked at towards the beginning of the semester about uh, reactions towards the printing of the Shulchan Aruch uh, and other halakhic codes. Um, that which I mean, part of partially that's about like uh, how law should be disseminated, but partially that's about how to deal with the technology. Yeah, and for telegraph as well. Great. Um, other examples, other technologies that the rabbis have tried to grapple with. I don't, I don't recall the details, but machines for making matzah. Hmm. Yeah. Whether you can make a matzah by machine or whether it has to be made by hand. Yeah. Yeah. That is. That remains an open question, actually. Um, there is some discussion uh, initially about whether coffee um, could be used. Um, that one was lost pretty quickly. <laughs> I, can, I mean, I don't hear that ever when people talk about like drinking Starbucks coffee. Like, well, you know, like really, coffee shouldn't be allowed in the first place. Um, On what grounds? I don't uh, know the details about it. But there's <laughs> oh wow. Um, I don't know the details about it. But I think someone recently wrote a book about it. Actually, um, discussion about uh, birth control, various methods of birth control. Um, discussions about uh, smoking, about a lot of different medical issues, especially in the 20th century, um, about smartphones, about the internet, um, about uh, surrogate pregnancies. Um, that's one that's, that's up and coming. And how do you think about Jewish motherhood? Is it based on who carried the baby or whose DNA is in the baby? Uh, that's one that like, it's, remains to be, well, there are some initial answers, but like, it's, it's very new. Um, Discussions about shaitals. Shaitals are a kind of new technology. The ability to like cover one's hair by wearing other hair um, is a kind of technology. Synthetic foods, genetically modified foods. So there's a lot. There's a lot here. So we're just like kind of skimming the surface. And the sources that you have in front of you are mostly about what was available to me. And this is not programmatic. Is there like a good example of technology that was new in the times of like the writing of the Talmud or like or like earlier than kind of the earliest thing we would think of would be like the printing press, which was after the year 1000, but let's say something between year zero and year 1000. Not one that comes to mind right now. I'm sure there are, but not one that comes to mind right now. I'm sure there are like agricultural innovations. It's, yeah, I was just wondering, I mean, I've, I'm asking a question rather than giving an answer, but I... Oh, no. <laughs> which is a good question. I, I imagine as the diaspora spreads, especially into Northern Europe, the, the modes of plowing are quite different. Um, and so whether or not all the agricultural implements were used for different climatological conditions, we're seeing the problematic. I mean, that might be sort of like a locus of, yeah. of interest. Um, another one might be um, financial technologies, mm. ways of transmitting money or ways of, ways of interacting with money. Um, can change pretty early. You might argue... Um, I'm saying this pretty tentatively, that like uh, the discussions in the Mishnah about ways of getting out of um, uh, the need to renounce all loans periodically, 
might be about financial technologies. Um, so that's when I have, I don't have one on top of my head beyond that. Okay, cool. So how do rabbis interact with new technology? So I want to start with a story which you've all read um, because it's on the first page, which is about Richard Feynman, the famous physicist, Nobel Prize winner, also Jewish, um, who came to JTS one day. And uh, he, well, he clearly doesn't know a lot about JTS. He calls it an orthodox institution, whatever. But one day, two or three of the young rabbis came to me and said, we realize that we can't study to be rabbis in the modern world without knowing something about science, so we'd like to ask you some questions. Of course, there are thousands of places to find out about science, but Columbia University was right near there, and I wanted to know what kinds of questions they were interested in. They said, well, for instance, is electricity fire? No, I said, but what is the problem? They said, in the Talmud it says that you're not supposed to make a fire on Saturday. So our question is, can we use electric things, electrical things on Saturdays? I was shocked. They weren't interested in science at all. The only way science was influencing their lives was so that they might be able to interpret better than the Talmud. They weren't interested in the world outside, in natural phenomena. They were only interested in resolving some question brought up in the Talmud. So I, I bring this as kind of a foil. Um, that I think that most halakhic sources, when they're, whether they're talking about electricity or something else, are actually like thinking about this a little bit more carefully than Richard Feynman gives them credit for. That it's not just a question of like, well, you know, if we follow the rule book, you know, it looks like electricity is more or less fire and therefore we have to uh, prohibit it. Um, there's actually like some thought uh, given to why one should use particular formal categories versus other ones um, that is not really expressed here. Um, and so to start that off, so the first question that we're going to look at is um, the question of whether electricity is allowed on Shabbat. So you may, you may like, know something about this discussion already. Um, nowadays, in, in most observant Jewish communities, electricity in all forms and all things that require electricity can be operated on Shabbat. Um, but uh, in the late 19th century, as electricity became, um, you know, an important new technology, this was a real serious discussion. Um, and many of the questions revolved around, well, uh, how do we think about electricity? What is electricity? Um, and what does it mean to, say, turn on a light switch or operate some kind of electrical implement? Um, and there were many attempts to, to kind of answer those questions on the basis of existing electrical material. So this, I would say, is like the first thing to note about um, rabbinic approaches to new technologies. Something new comes on the scene, and there's instantly an attempt to uh, make it uh, understandable in terms of older paradigms. Like, what is this like? From all of the halakhic material that we know, what is this like? So for electricity, and this is particular to turning on lights, incandescent light bulbs, um, the discussion was about um, fire. Is this considered fire? So we have, uh, in the middle half of the first page, Mishnah says, one who heats a metal pot may not pour cold water into it and heat it. However, one may pour water into the pot or a cup in order to temper it. Okay, so discussion about um, heating things um, in terms of uh, in terms of heating the pot itself, like so, in terms of heating something metal, you, are, you can already get a sense of like where this where this is going, right? Where's so where's this going? Thinking about incandescent bulbs, what's the analogy? Well, I guess the thought is that what you're doing when you're turning on an incandescent light bulb is heating up the metal part of the thing, but that's not really. So accurate. Right. So this is like this is about it's like heating a filament. So why isn't why isn't it so accurate? Because what you're really doing, you're not really heating up the filament. The filament happens to heat up because of kind of imperfections in the process, for, as far as I can tell. Mm. That it heats up only because of kind of, because it, it, it's not 100% efficient. Were the process 100% efficient, the filament would not heat up mm. at all. So, right, so it's not about heating. It's really about, it's about light. Right. Even though 95% of the, 
the energy goes to heat, but it's, that's not really what you want out of it. So yeah, um, great. So you kind of um, anticipated the rest of these sources. So just to run through them quickly, um, the Talmud starts discussing what is the es- like what is the essence of this case. Uh, if you look at the last verse on the page, Rabbi Sheshit rules that the cooking uh, of wick of metal, just like the cooking of spices, is prohibited on Shabbat because of the biblical prohibition to cook on Shabbat. So like something very basic about this. Um, now, turn the page. This gets codified by Rambam, who says, one who heats a metal bar in order to temper it in water has violated the biblical prohibition of lighting a flame. So there is, there are some grounds from this source to say that um, there is, that there's a prohibition to using incandescent lights on Shabbat because it is similar to what Rambam suggests, although keeping in mind Adam's point that this is not a perfect comparison. Um, in the early stages of uh, rabbinic discussion about whether electricity is allowed or not, a lot of the conversation was, was, was looking at sources like this, saying that electricity is or is not analogous to this, um, is, it, is or is not analogous to cooking or to um, transferring fire or to lighting fire or to building because you're constructing a circuit, which you're destroying when you, you, know, when you close the circuit, um, when you shut something off. This was a lot of the initial discussion, and there was a variety of opinions about this. So some sources, for example, would say that on Yom Tov, because one is allowed to transfer fire on Yom Tov, um, turning on light should be fine, because all one is doing is kind of transferring a current um, into a light source, and so that is perfectly fine. And there were communities, and like small minority of communities, uh, which allowed for uh, using some kind of electricity on Yom Tov as a result of this. So I'd say like this is like kind of like the first stage of a discussion when you have a new technology is just trying to get a sense of how these sources, how how the existing sources apply in a formal way. What you don't have is saying, this is how I think electricity affects my life or affects what it means to have Shabbat. Therefore, it should be allowed or prohibited. It's really just thinking in terms of formal categories because it's so new. The next stage of the discussion is one in which electricity is already very much a part of people's lives. So one of the first um, uh, works dedicated to discussion about electricity is written by a rabbi from Montreal, not from Montreal, but he, he lived in Montreal for many years, named Rabbi Yehuda Yuval Rosenberg, in a book called Mo'or HaChashmal, Chashmal being electricity. Um, which, this is like, really fun to translate, just trying to figure out like, all the terminology he was using. Um, but So I've given you a selection of it below. So he says on page 3, uh, question, whether it is permissible to use electrical illumination on holidays by pressing or flipping a button in the wall, or whether it is prohibited because it is considered the production of fire, havara. Indeed, um, we have seen that many are lax on themselves in this matter, um, where a stringency, humra, in this matter will constitute a decree which most of the public is not able to abide. Interestingly, um, that line is not in the edition which is in front of you. I'm pretty sure that someone took out that passage when they reprinted the work because they were uncomfortable with the rabbi saying that he was uh, making a ruling on electricity on the basis of most people wouldn't be able to follow it. Um, among the learned, there are those who permit it and those who forbid it. More than once, conflict has erupted among them because of this. The reasons that have been heard from both sides have no basis uh, or textual evidence. Sorry for the, spell, for the typos again. I was doing this kind of in a rush. Um, so you already get a sense. Like, so what is his, how is he approaching this discussion of electricity? How is he, how is he, what are his values going into answering the question? Well, he wants to permit it. Yeah. He, he wants to 
make sure that there isn't a situation where people are regularly prohibiting, regularly transgressing the law. And he's also recognizing that at this point there's already, you know, arguments on both sides. So he's like he's speaking in the context of all those formal discussions that I talked about a minute ago. So he, as you can as you can imagine, lands kind of on the permissible side. He says, in all the cases mentioned in the Mishnah and elucidated in the Rambam, which we looked at before, such as one who rubs pieces of wood together, who strikes stone with pieces of metal, who focuses the sun's rays onto a piece of flax, in each of these cases, uh, one is doing malacha by working with his own hands in order to create a fire. And one cannot say that these activities are simply an indirect cause of carrying a flame. So he recognizes, like, there's more than one way to make a fire. You can make a fire by, like, focusing light onto a piece of flax. Um, this is not the case for electric light, since the essential activity of producing current for the purposes of illumination is done in the electricity plant by other people by means of machines. They produce two types of electrical current by means of friction. I don't know what, I don't know what uh, he means there. Uh, I, don't, I would love to know what kind of plants they had in Montreal in the 20s. And through the power of the machines there, which they operate so that the machines will distribute the electricity and the two types of current will flow on two copper wires. What are these two types of current? Yeah, so he's talking about like... Um, what he meant, I don't know how well he understands the, the physics of it, but uh, about alternating current. Pressing the button is only the activity of touching or connecting two separate copper wires and uh, wire ends at this junction in order that the copper wire become a kind of bridge or a conduit for the flow of electrical current in order that the current's movement not be interrupted at the place where the copper wire is interrupted and instead be able to flow into the light bulb in order to unite with the second electri electric current. From this, it is obvious that pressing a button on the wall is only an indirect cause of carrying a flame and is not the same as all those cases mentioned in the Mishnah and Rambam. So, so what's the basic point here? They're kind of long sentences. But. It's not direct enough. Right. Really, you know, if I am um, direct, if I am focusing a beam of light onto a piece of flax so that it'll burn, I'm the one who's causing that flame. But with an electrical light source, when I'm pressing the button, I'm not causing the flame, I'm just completing a circuit the source of that energy is from the electrical plant. They're the ones who are really causing it. I'm just supporting it in some way. Um, so on this basis, he says, there's a difference between Shabbat and Yom Tov. On Shabbat, uh, when one is prohibited from transferring fire, um, one should not be allowed to turn on lights. Um, but on Yom Tov, when transferring a flame is permissible, this is all I'm really doing by pressing the button on the wall, and therefore it should be allowed for me to, to complete an electrical circuit on Yom Tov. He has a, a couple of other arguments to make the same point, um, but that's kind of how he, how he ends up on this question. And so if you see the second last paragraph on page four, what emerges from this whole discussion is that pressing a button on the wall in order for electrical illumination is ab initio, permissible on holidays. And if Israel are not prophets, they are at least the sons of prophets. But to do this on Shabbat is forbidden, and the arrogant ones who permitted it on Shabbat speak falsely about our prophetic inheritance and have no knowledge of Torah and desecrate Shabbat with their actions. Nice flourish. Um, he has a whole separate discussion about turning off a light. This is just for turning on a light. Okay. So at this point in his life, um, Rabbi Rosenberg is an old man. Um, there is another very important rabbinic scholar who's just coming on the scene and is in his 20s right now, Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Arbach, who just passed away um, a couple decades ago. Um, and he wrote uh, one of the other most important early treatises on electric electricity, um, seemingly without knowing about Rabbi Rosenberg's treatise. This is written separately. So he says... And this is just part of it. Indeed, this is to announce that I have written all this only as a theoretical discussion in halacha and not for a practical application. 
For even if it were true that turning electric lights on and off on Jewish holidays is permissible, it nonetheless looks entirely like weekday actions, and it is possible to be concerned about an adverse reaction in that the common people, hahamun, will think that it is permitted because it is not real fire, and they will come to light and extinguish electricity on the Shabbat as well. Even though we should not add decrees to those of our sages, may their memory be a blessing, nonetheless, leave Israel be, who have treated it as forbidden. So what's his basic... What's the argument? Why should electricity, at least theoretically, be prohibited on Shabbat and Yom Tov? Slippery slope. Right. So this isn't an argument as much about, I think it's fire, I think it's not fire. It's saying, if we allow Jews to do this, then they will come to act in a way which is actually prohibited. Or it will, um, ha- it will change kind of the relationship with Shabbat even. Um, and this is not what we want. Um, and so, so he's... Uh, does not allow this. Now, after he wrote this letter, uh, Rabbi Rosenberg, um, who had written on this subject before, wrote to Rabbi Arabach, uh, this young guy, saying, uh, I'm not, I don't really like your answer. Um, and he says, your Torah ship knows that I also realize that here, in the case of electricity, there are factors tending towards prohibition and towards permission. However, there is a great obligation on the part of the rabbis of the generation to be on the side of permission as much as possible. For just as it is an obligation to say something that will be obeyed, so it is an obligation not to say something that will not be obeyed, which is the point he made earlier. For this, prohibiting turning electric lights on and off on Jewish holidays is a decree that the majority of the community is unable to uphold, and the masses will certainly not listen to the voice of the rabbis who who prohibit. The arguments for permission for which I labored and which I found are poured forth smoothly like a mirror, and they can be refuted neither by logical arguments nor by difficulties, from the latter halachic authorities. It is understood that the gates of rejoinders have not been locked. This is, a, this is not my translation. Sorry about that. Um, if they decree upon me the punishment of hell for this responsum, it would be better for me to be in hell along with the myriads of Israel who light and extinguish electricity on holidays rather than be in paradise with the elite who, instead of loving righteousness, have chosen love of wickedness. So he's really not a fan of Rabbi Arbach's answer here. I don't, how is he saying, oh, well... What is a what is a thing that people can't do? They can't not they can't refrain from electricity on Yom Tov, but on Shabbat like they can. Like it seems like a weird position. Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying it's impossible like people, yeah, every week for one day they can refrain from electricity, but they can't do it on Yom Tov. Right. I, I think you he's, yeah, go ahead. Um just a question. It, it seems certainly like Auerbach's position is prescriptive. I mean, he comes right out and says that like there are potentially grounds for allowing this um, in order to maintain a certain community standard we ought not to. Um, and it seems like, to a certain degree, um, Rosenberg is descriptive. And I'm just wondering, I mean, how much can we read into that? Is he actually, because this goes to your question, Adam, I mean, is he describing the practice of a Jewish community that is comfortable using electricity on himself but not on Shabbat? Hmm. Or is just that what he feels ought to be acceptable given the fact that probably yeah. they would use it on both? So, the way I read it is that um, he would like to be as lax as possible, and for him that means allowing turning on lights on, y- on Yom Tov. Um, so even though uh, it might be the case that that will cause Jews to turn on lights on Shabbat, I mean, either he doesn't think that's a possibility or he just doesn't, con- he doesn't think that's going to happen or he just doesn't consider it. Um, but I, I, I think actually it is somewhat pres- prescriptive in the sense that like he's concerned about... Um, 
people sinning. Like he doesn't want people to sin, even though they might not know that they're sinning. But he wants to have the, the normative practice be that it's allowed on Yom Tov, so that at least, at least for those days of the year, people aren't sinning. Mm-hmm. Also, what do, what do we think is preventing him from permitting it on Shabbat? So he has a few reasons for saying that it's not permissible on Shabbat. Um, one is um, they all really go back to this idea that um, on Yom Tov, transferring flame is permissible. Um, for Shabbat, he says, uh, you know, on Shab- so on Shabbat, um, even though you are just one agent in the process of creating, of turning on this light, so you're an agent and the um, electricity plant is an agent, there is a principle in Masechet Shabbat that says, you know, if two people who conduct an action together, if neither one of them is able to do it on their own, but together they can both do it, they're still both liable, like they, they should still be punished. So on that basis, he says, even though, on Shabbat, even though you, neither you nor the electricity plant can turn on the light by yourself, um, your actions together are still punishable. Uh, whereas on Yom Tov, because it's only a transfer of flame, um, and because your action is only transferring the flame, therefore it's fine. So we're saying that he thinks kind of there's this objective reality of this is, you know, this is not permitted and, like, that's, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe to put it another way, like, thinking in terms of uh, norms, forms, and values, Mm -hmm. the norm here is there are lots and lots of Jews who turn on lights on Shabbat and on Yom Tov. He's concerned about that, and so his values are, he like, he wants to make sure that Jews aren't constantly sinning. That's a value, a clear value for him. But formally, at least for him, he thinks you kind of can't get past the fact that on Shabbat, it's just not permitted. Even though from a values perspective, he would like to be as lax as possible, he thinks this is as far as he can go. Yeah. So, I mean, it's actually like an interesting balance. Like, he's tried to kind of be lax within his own perception of what laxness allows. Um, by the way, I think we saw something, a similar kind of argument in the previous week about Eruv. Rabbi saying we should be as lax as possible about allowing Eruv around like Manhattan or Toronto because if we don't, people are going to be uh, transgressing Shabbat all the time by carrying. So we have to be as, as lax as possible, but only within acceptable limits still, uh, what they understand as being acceptable limits. Yeah. So I, I may be venturing into a slightly different discussion, but it seems like the crux of his decision hinges essentially on, on the question of responsibility, whether it's direct or indirect, whether it can be shared. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this question of direct or indirect is, is like that's sort of where it's located. Whereas I think what Aaron was saying was that um, in the case of a light bulb producing light and along the way doing inefficiency of process, mm-hmm. also producing heat, um, that being a different sort of question of indirect directness in that it's like an indirect effect right. of a different sort of action. Does he, does he engage with that mode of thinking at all? Um, no, so he's already not thinking directly about, I'm oh, sorry, he's not thinking uh, about, you know, what is this thing called electricity? Like, he, he is going under the assumption that it's related to fire in some way. One could argue that, say, that is not the case, that that's actually not the governing principle here, mm-hmm. but for his, for his purposes, that, that's how, that's the level on which he's having the discussion. Um, so I'd say like this is kind of like the second level in thinking about new technologies. So we already have a discussion of values, and the sources like clearly indicate that they are thinking not just in terms of the formal concerns, but also in terms of what the effect will be on a society. What do we, what kind of what kind of society do we want to live in? Do we want trans Do we want transgressors? Do we want to make sure that people don't accidentally transgress Shabbat? Um, another stage goes beyond that, where technologies are already 
um, part of society. There's already um, traditions within communities about how one does or does not behave towards a new technology, and then one kind of reevaluates or reflects based on that. So Rav Avadji Yosef is a good example of that, in, in that he says uh, on page five, since there are those who permit the lighting of electric lights on Yom Tov, apparently this was a practice which continued, one should not strongly rebuke people who turn on lights on Yom Tov, specifically since many congregations in the diaspora have this tradition with the approbation of their rabbis. Nonetheless, it is proper to explain to such people in a mild voice that most rabbinic authorities are strict about this matter and the law follows the majority. So like, we're getting to this point where we're kind of fine-tuning it. Um, and again, not even engaging with the question of, well, why is electricity prohibited permitted? Simply saying most rabbinic authorities are strict about this matter. And that's kind of like we've developed a party line on this issue. Uh, so this, I would say, is a kind of like a mature approach to a new technology. Um, but it's not the only one. Um, and for another one, I invite you to look at the second last page of your handout, which is part of a tshuva written by the conservative movement uh, last year, actually, 2012, um, where it describes, it's actually, a, a, if you want to talk about electricity on Shabbat, this is a great tshuva to read. It's very readable. So I, you know, I highly encourage you to read it. Um, but one of the things that it says, uh, so, so it runs through the different possible issues why electricity is or is not uh, permitted, kind of like going back to the beginning, the formal discussion, um, but also with an eye towards what kind of Shabbat environment we want to create. The difference between the conservative tshuva and others is that it tries to kind of be more specific with uh, discussions of electricity, not saying electricity blanket rule is or is not permitted, but saying for particular kinds of appliances is it or is not permitted. And here they have for you at the end of the tshuva a convenient table of what they think are the, the root reasons behind why uh, different, different appliances are or not permitted. I should point out that it does say in the paragraph above that um, even forbidden items may be permitted as discussed above when overwritten by Kendra Van uh, Sorry, that's not the line. Um, the line before, it says, recall that even permitted activities may be avoided in order to further differentiate Shabbat from the weekday. So it's not advocating saying, like, okay, now you should do some of these things. It's totally cool. It's just saying, like, look, if you really want to be clear about this, not, like, electricity is not uniformly uh, prohibited, or it's not prohibited in all the same ways. Uh, you know, for example, you know, plowing is not, is not permitted on Shabbat. If I use an electric plow, it's not the electricity that's the problem. It's the plowing that's the problem. So there are some things which are clearly problematic for those reasons. Uh, similarly, like, you know, one could make the argument that writing on a cell phone is, is, is kind of like writing. So it's not, permitted, it's not prohibited because of the electricity. It's prohibited because of the writing part. So this is kind of like another kind of mature way of dealing with a new technology. Um, and then the third one, which doesn't have a source, is once a new technology is established and once, it's, um, once, the, rule, once the halakhic rules in society are put in place, you can start talking about getting around those rules. So then you have this whole other realm of loopholes. And for electricity, there's lots of them. So the kosher lamp, if you're familiar with that, is um, established on the basis of um, the electricity technology uh, and a society which is already pretty comfortable with the way that it deals with electricity halakhically. Um, the same is true for timers that people use on Shabbat so that like, their hot plates go on or go off. So this is kind of like... Again, like dealing with an existing technology, uh, it's halakhic implications already being set, um, you know, for a while. Okay. So as far as like complete examples, electricity is helpful because it's relatively old. The ones we're going to look at next are a little bit newer. But let me stop there for a second. If there's any questions about this so far. Just so I recall, 
What was your tripartite division of, sort of modes of engagements, form, values, and... Uh, so forms, norms, and values, like planes, trains, and automobiles. Uh, that's, how you, that's how I remember it. Um, okay. So electricity is old hat. Let's look at something more fun. Meat. Lab-growing meat. Okay, so let's go to the other end of things. Um, I think it's fair to say that lab-grown meat is in, the, is, is in kind of the first stage of technology discussion. I, I'm going to assume that most of you, maybe even all of you, have never eaten any lab-grown meat, uh, given that I think only a couple burgers have ever been produced, um, and they cost several hundred thousand dollars. That has not stopped some discussion already happening about whether it is permitted or prohibited. And I think it's instructive to kind of look at these first stage answers to get a sense of how they're starting to think about what it means to have lab-grown meat. By the way, like is, does everyone know what this is, lab-grown meat? Because like it's been on Facebook enough like that people are aware of this. Uh, meat grown in a lab, but not, not directly from an animal, from stem cells. Okay, so Chabad on their website has an answer. So they say, page number six, Scientists have recently, you know, the, you know the question already, response. This is a fascinating question that needs to be studied carefully by expert rabbis when the issue becomes more practical and petri dish burgers become an affordable option. So this is important already, that he notes that this is only an initial response because it does not exist in society yet. But here are some preliminary thoughts on the subject to give you some perspective. So um, look at the middle of the page, the, um, the long paragraph. So this is the first story, which I think is amazing. Um, it's an amazing story. The story of Rabbi Shimon ben Chalafta, who was walking on the road when lions met him and roared at him. Thereupon he quoted from Psalms, the young lions roar for prey and to beg their food from God, and two lumps of flesh descended from heaven. They, the lions, ate one and left the other. This he brought to the study hall and propounded, is this fit for food or not? The scholar answered, nothing unfit descends from heaven. Rabbi Zera asked Rabbi Bahu, what if, someone in the what if something in the shape of a donkey were to descend? He replied, you howling Yarod, did they not answer him that no unfit thing descends from heaven? Like, didn't you just hear what we said? Like, that's, why are you not listening? So um, Rashi says it's some kind of bird. Um, yeah. It's not a good thing. You don't want to be one. Um, great. So... Uh, this rabbi, this Chabad rabbi, suggests that this is a good source for talking about um, lab-grown meat. It's kind of like meat from heaven. Um, so first of all, like, this is wonderful. I think this is like such a wonderful reappropriation of um, a uh, of an agadah, which I, I imagine had no practical use up until this point. Um, and it fits not so badly, although um, there's a difference between meat grown in a lab and meat coming from the sky. Um, but whatever. Um, miraculous meat appears again in the Talmud, although this time it was man-made. Rabbi Chinina ben, uh, and Rabbi Shai would spend every Shabbat Eve studying the book of creation, Sefer Yitzirah, by means of which they created a, a calf and ate it. Okay, so magical meat, also kind of like lab-grown meat, maybe a little bit different. But again, there's this sense of, like, they're not talking about, well, was it shechted properly? Um, but presumably if they created a calf, it was at some point alive, so it was identified as a cow. But if you skip the whole being alive part and being shefted, and you go straight to the meat. Right, so look at the next line. In discussing the story, later commentaries debate whether such an animal would require shechita in order to be eaten. So, like, so, right, so exactly what you said. Like, there is some discussion about whether they... Because it doesn't say. It doesn't say that they shefted it in the, in the source itself. Um, great. So that's one way of looking at this. 
Others write that while a technical interpretation of biblical law may not require such an animal to be slaughtered, the rabbinic prohibition of marit ayin, not engaging in acts that look misleadingly for, for, similar to forbidden activity, would, necess, would necessitate a slaughter, lest an onlooker think that ordinary meat is being consumed without shechita. Okay. Um, so this is already him kind of trying to speculate on what this will look like in society. Like, not just, you know, theoretically is this permitted, but like, what, is it, what does it look like for like someone, for a Jewish person to now be at McDonald's eating a hamburger because it's grown in the lab? Um, maybe even eating it with cheese because it's not considered meat. Um, so he's aware of that. He's just flagging that. Um, and then he gives a couple of other um, approaches to think about this. Uh, so in the second paragraph, the cells, uh, so sci- uh, the scientist extracts the cells of a real animal and use them to grow the tissues in a petri dish. If, and that is not a small if, the mere cells are considered substantial enough to be called meat, this may present a problem. In addition to the prohibition of eating a limb from a living animal, there is an additional injunction not to eat any meat that was severed from a living animal. So another way you can think about this is like, well, maybe this is kind of like tearing off, you know, the leg of a goat, um, at least formally, if you think about stem cells as limbs. Stem cells have to be from a live animal. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I th- yeah, there has to be like a living animal, at least at this point, at least at this like point of technology. <laughs> right, so, so it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how the animal is killed. Um, and then he also talks about, um, and I think this is maybe the most um, salient point uh, in the last bullet point on the page, the, uh, in Jewish law, a food that contains only a minuscule amount of a non-kosher ingredient can still be considered kosher if the non-kosher ingredient is nullified, usually by at least a factor of 60 to 1, so batal b'shishim. At first glance, it would appear that we can apply this rule to our scenario since the original cells are greatly outnumbered by the meat produced. However, halacha states that the above rule does not apply to a davar hamamid, an ingredient that established the form of the item. The essential ingredient can never be nullified no matter how small it is. It would seem that the same rule applies to the cells that are essential to growing the meat. If they don't come from a kosher source, they can never be nullified, and whatever is created with them is also not kosher. So I think, like, you know, for an initial response to, uh, to a totally new area of halakha, to a totally new um, technology, this is fairly good. Um, so it's already thinking about how is this going to look, married ayin. It's thinking about how do we think about stem cells? Do we think about them as limbs? How do, what's the relationship with the original animal? Um, it's talking about, uh, it's trying to relate it to this notion of meat coming from heaven, magical meat, uh, as a kind of more direct precedent uh, in the halakhic sources, and, and talking about, well, yes, even though the part that came from a living, maybe non-kosher animal is very small, maybe that's a devaramami, maybe that's like the essential component, and therefore it's not allowed. So I think this is like a fairly good start um, to, to the discussion that we have. Um, and you can see in this like a kind of combination of like just applying formal rules and also an attempt to kind of look forward to like how is this going to play out in society. Um, I'll give you another response that uh, we're not going to read it all the way through. This is by a teacher of mine, um, Rabbi Elisha Anchelevitz, um, who I, I guess someone asked him the same question around the same time when the news articles about this lab growing meat came out. Um, and so he... he um, uh, has some of the similar concerns as the Chabad rabbi and some of the different ones. Um, so he points out, like, so um, towards the beginning of the page, halakhically, even a breathing fetus calf that was removed from a cow's slaughter uh, is minimally acceptable as food if it was killed in any way, although the humane cultural standard is to slaughter it. So he points out, like, there is a way to, like, like as, as Adam was pointing out, like, there is a way to, to deal with animals that were not slaughtered properly um, as kind of descendants. And maybe you can think about a stem cell as kind of like the calf of a, of a cow that was slaughtered. 
Uh, so maybe that's like another way of thinking about this. Um, uh, what else do I want to show you on this page? Um, next page. Okay, so uh, look at look at number three in page nine. As regards the injunction against eating milk and meat, this new meat had no mother. Thus, the meat is no longer meat. It is all the more so not a domesticated species in light of the fact that anything born to a species is considered part of that species, no matter what it looks like. I will separate the two questions of species and of being an animal. So, like this is important because, like from the, from the biblical perspective, um, the discussion about meat comes from um, like not boiling a meat, not boiling a kid in its mother's milk. Uh, this animal has no mother. Uh, this meat has no mother, rather. Um, and there's also some discussion about the difference between domesticated species and wild species. Um, if a calf is born with genetic mutations that make it appear more like a pig, it is still kosher, a calf meat. In other words, because it shares the grazing, biological, and mating traits of a calf and not a pig, regardless of its appearance, it is a calf. In fact, even if it were born dead, as a fetus, it is forbidden to cook and eat with milk, but that again is because it is the embryo that might have been born alive and suckled. In our case, there is no emotional relationship or even economic relationship between cooking a killed calf, kid in the milk of a cow that is being milked until it will, uh, until it will in turn be killed, since this meat was never a developing calf. This meat is not an embryo. So just like look at this paragraph for a second. So like, what is he, what is he trying to do? Um, what kind of argument is he trying to make in this paragraph? Why is this different than a calf. Why is this not, why should we not think about this, this lab-grown meat as actually being meat? Well, he's saying that this lab meat was never going to be a calf, like a real calf. So there's no, it's not in the same category as like a dead fetus, because the fetus in normal circumstances would have um, come under the prohibition. Right. So this is a slightly less formulaic, but still a preliminary way of thinking about this meat. And that it's not just saying, well, what halakha category does it fall into? It's saying, how do we think about um, weird animals in general? How do we think about, um, you know, calves that look like pigs? Um, and how does this fit into that discussion? How does uh, a piece of meat which did not have a mother, which does not look like any kind of animal, how does that fit into the discussion? So this, in a way, is, is trying to get at where should we place this lab-grown meat um, within other halakhic examples that we know um, on the basis of um, like the, the root causes be behind those halakhot. So in a sense, like it's, our, it's dealing with, with values in a sense, but it's still not dealing with a cultural implications. Anyways, you can look at the rest of the source um, as you like. Are there comments or questions about this one? So what I would say just about this is, although these are two great chujvot, uh, these are two great initial answers, there's a lot of questions which, if lab green meat ever becomes a reality, these questions do not solve at all. I'll give you an example. Um, meat in Judaism is not just any old food. Meat is a special food, right? Meat is involved with, meat is connected to simcha, is connected to the Beit HaMikdash. What does it mean that meat is now grown in a lab? Does that mean that we should think about meat differently from a Jewish perspective? I'll give you another example. Um, if lab-grown meat becomes the main way that meat is, uh, is used in America, then it's quite possible that there could be meat all over the United States that is now permissible for Jews. 
which would totally change the way that Jewish restaurants work and the way that Jews consume food. Um, it might mean that Jews also eat food alongside non-Jews much more often, uh, which is something which rabbis are concerned about as well. So the discussion about lab-grown meat, at least in these initial discussions, like is not thinking about what are the social implications of lab-grown meat becoming widely available. Um, if lab-grown meat also becomes a prominent thing and if it's kosher, then the notion of shechita could become really outmoded. Like, why do you need shechita anymore if you're growing everything from stem cells? Is there a value to preserving shechita as like a very old um, Jewish ritual, uh, Jewish profession? Um, is there a reason to continue slaughtering animals um, because of that, uh, even if lab-grown meat is allowed? Certainly questions about, you know, can we have, can we have cheeseburgers um, with lab-grown meat? Is that allowable? Um, or is that just too weird? Like, those are all things that have to, you have to wait until this becomes a reality to deal with these questions. Um, and maybe even the biggest question is, if we're at the point in um, thinking about food that where I can no longer distinguish between food that is artificial or synthetic, then how do I think about food in Judaism in general? Like, think about the way that we make brachot over food, we make blessings over food. They're very frequently about where the food came from, right? Like, God who, like, like the, we talk, we talk about, like, you know, b'rei priha'et, b'rei priha'adama, coming from trees, coming from the ground. We think about this a lot, about where food came from. Already, like, when we buy food from supermarkets, we're very disconnected from those brachot, in a sense, because we don't pick the food from the trees or from the ground. Does lab-grown meat, um, something which is like clearly, very clearly from an animal, if it's no longer directly from an animal, does that change the way that we think about food in Judaism, or should it? Um, should it change the brachot that we give? So like, these are like much bigger questions, uh, which can't be answered yet. You had a question before. I, um, yeah, actually, I think I have two now. One was when you said it, these are issues which can't be dealt with until the thing exists. Mm-hmm. Um, is that because you expect there to emerge complexities that we can't possibly foresee, or just because the, the pressure to deal with it will be so much greater that we'll have to then? Both. Okay. Yeah, both of those things. Um, it's just it's so difficult to, to understand how it will play out. And also it's possible that it won't play out in one way. It might be that, you know, maybe on the East Coast there'll be lots of lab-grown meat available, but, you know, in rural America it won't be so common. So, like, exactly how that will play out is still very new. There, maybe there'll be questions about... Um, if something is packaged as lab-grown meat, but is actually real meat, um, how do you deal with the fraud in those situations? Um, another question which like, we cannot begin to discuss until it's clear how frequently that would happen or what kinds of you know, regulations exist. Um, so this is like all like, you know, several, several steps into the future. I mean, in the latter instance, I feel like it, there at least is a precedent so far as like, the kosher industry occasionally sure. has these. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's not to say, like, there aren't things to draw on. It's just to say exactly, like, if, if you want to make prescriptive law in the way that Rabbi Shlomo Zaman Arabach is making prescriptive law, we can't do that yet. We have to have, like, some norms established in the forms, norms, and values scheme. So there's no norms yet for, for um, lab-grown meat. Okay. The other very yeah, question, yeah. <laughs> sorry, this just came to me. Um, you, I don't know, you make a really interesting point with, with sort of, like, recalling to mind where food came from in the Racha. Um, has there been anything done with, like, I'm just envisioning, like, vegetables grown in, like, hydroponic gardens where it's, like, suspended in water and it's never even been in the earth? I mean, has there been any engagement with this sort of admittedly minority case? I don't know. Does that alter whether or not you say a bracha? I think it's a good question. Um, I would imagine you say bracha anyways because you're supposed to say bracha about everything. 
Um, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if anyone's sorry. I feel like I read somewhere that you say shot alcohol in hydroponics. Hmm. Not sure. Really? Interesting. Not sure. It might just be like that. I mean, it's all about like that because it means they're seriously engaging with the fact that it is literally coming from a different place. Mm. Yeah. That's really cool. Or like, you know, there was like a, an op-ed on the New York Times website about how like everything with pumpkin spice in it, like there's actually no pumpkin in it at all. It's like all synthetic ingredients. So like, do you say hi, Dama, if there's pumpkin in your latte or if you're eating pumpkin pie, but like there's maybe no pumpkin in it or, yeah. Sorry? Right. Or maybe a question is how, how much, um, how much research do you have to do into figuring out whether there is pumpkin in it? Like, like, like that's that's a whole other area of like of no, doubt. I think, I think like because the, the whole point is that like if it doesn't look like the mm. original food anymore. All right. All right, that's a good point. Okay. Um, cool. So I don't know. So the way we're running this year is we're we're looking at more and less and less developed areas of halacha. So let's look at another one where there's really not a lot to go on. Uh, this is source number ten. Sorry, this is page number ten. There is a very, very small halakhic literature about what to do if you are in space. Um, and one of these sources, we don't need to read through this all because time is running short, um, is about how you uh, think about holidays and how you think about um, you know, Shabbat if you are orbiting the Earth every 90 minutes. Um, and so it will be Levi Yitzchak Halpern, and I think this was written uh, before uh, Ilan Ramon uh, blasted off, uh, as a kind of exercise, um, says that, well, uh, however we can support such a person's position, there, this is a Gemara in Shabbat 69b. Rabbi Huda says, one who is traveling in the desert and does not know when Shabbat is, he should count six days and keep the seventh day. Chia ben Rav said, keep one day and count six days. What are they arguing about? One rabbi is reasoning according to the creation of the world, and the other rabbi is reasoning according to Adam. Yeah. Therefore, a person may begin counting his days and hours uh, according to Israel time, for he is uh, for if he marks exactly when he first flew over Israel, as well as the day of the week and of the month. At that point, he be can begin counting from them. So I, I really like this this kind of answer. It's kind of like that like you know, me coming from heaven answer. Like this is clearly a source that was not intended for use in space, but um, it works not badly uh, in 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 providing a source for how do you keep time in a place which is not conducive to keeping time. Um, Again, this is very rudimentary, and so this is like, you know, um, it will be many, many, probably be at least a century. I don't know, whenever you think space travel is going to be a big thing. Uh, it'll be a while until, until this becomes uh, a big deal. Um, I should also point out that um, there's a very similar discussion in Islamic sources when the first Malaysian, when the first Muslim and the first Malaysian astronaut blasted off, a treatise was written basically saying very similar things about how one should pray five times a day uh, if you are in space. So it's new for everybody. Um, even newer, talking about something which I didn't know existed before a couple days ago, um, is uh, Amazon Prime Air. Um, and maybe when people listen to this later on, they'll be like, oh, we know how that works. Uh, but I don't, because I only saw a three-minute video about it. Um, but um, you know, unmanned robots delivering your packages to your house. Uh, so I've given you what I believe is the first halakhic question ever asked about Amazon Prime Air as a source, which is on Facebook for this event. Um, can I shoot down? Pa so Josh Rosenberg, if you're listening to this, you are on the source sheet. 
Can I shoot down package delivery drones on a Friday before sundown if the delivery is going to be after sundown? That is a good question. I don't have an as answer in, to that question. As in, like, can you damage other people's properties? <laughs> yeah, maybe let's adjust the question. I think the better question is, can you order something on Shabbat and then receive? Can you order something knowing that you'll receive it on Shabbat? Isn't that like a little bit of a question? Oh. What's the exact concern that, like, you can't carry it into your house? You're making a kinyan on it, you get it. Sure, those are both both good points. Yeah, you're making a kinyan on it. Um, you're doing something like you you are, like you're doing it with the intention that this must arrive on Shabbat. Like there's no there's no question about it. Like it's going to arrive on Shabbat. Um, How is that different than normal than than ordering any package from Amazon? Amazon tells you when it's going to arrive. But yeah, they you don't, don't order packages on uh, on. Oh, but they do deliver. We also don't, you also don't know. Yeah. Like, the, like if you really know it's going to arrive in 30 minutes. Yeah, it's like... No, meaning like they have like I, I'm two ordering day this delivery, right. like you know it's going to arrive in two days. But it could arrive in one day, or it could arrive in, or it could get messed up. Meaning like... But it could, no, all, it like it could arrive like, in 20 minutes, it could I'm, arrive in... I'm, I'm going to order something like right before I light candles. Right. Is that... Right, so it gets there in 30 minutes. These right? are all great questions. Like how do you, you know, are these drones like, uh, do, do they, are they reliable? Like is it always 30 minutes, like 100% of the time? Or is it like usually thirty minutes, but sometimes the, the drones get shot down by weirdos? Like, I don't know. Like, this doesn't exist yet. The FAA hasn't allowed this yet. But like, these will be the questions that we ask. Are you concerned about causing non-sentient robots to sin? Is that like one of the concerns? It's <laughs> not my concern. No, no, no. It's an R&D. Who knows? 2015 or so, apparently. This would totally ruin the whole like Castaway Robinson Crusoe plot line. Um. Last source I want to look at um, is a little bit different, and this is just to say that when you're talking about new technologies, you can still use old material, and you can use it in a pretty beautiful way. Um, so one example of this is uh, there is uh, a ritual that Jews do sometimes on Mosei Shabbat called Kiddush Levana, um, where they go out and look at the moon, and among the things that you say in Kiddush Levana is this line where you say that, like, just as I dance before you and cannot touch you, so too... My, enemy, my enemies will not be able to touch me. Now, up until 1969, this is a perfectly reasonable thing to say. But, as it turns out, there are some people who were able to touch the moon. So, how do you deal with that? So, um, a couple days after, when was, when was the first moon landing? July uh, 18th, 20th, 19th, I don't know. Anyway, so like within a week of the first moon landing, um, the Jewish Telegraph Agency points out that there was an answer to this question. Thoughtful Jews have speculated about the impact on Judaism's religious outlook that would be made by man's successful exploration of space. In a small way, the answer began to emerge within hours of the historic Apollo 11 moon landing and the exploration by astronauts Neil Armstrong and colon Edwin E. Aldrin, Jr. The word came from Israel when General Shlomo Goren, the armed forces chief chaplain, issued instructions about a change in the prayer for the blessing of the new moon, which is said each month. The old blessing, so that's the wording um, I described before, and the new wording is Kashem Shani Roked Negdecha, or Negdech, of any Nogea Bich, Kach, Im Yirkidu Achirim Kenegdi, Lo Yigubi. So I dance and do not touch you, but rather cannot touch you. I just happen to not be on a moon mission right now, so I'm not touching you. And I guess the other question would be, if you are on the moon currently, first of all, when do you say Kiddush Levana? And then, which line do you say? Um, but what's nice about this is that he didn't just modify the existing passage. He actually found it as a variant of the, of the one we normally say uh, in Masechet Sofrim, which is uh, one of the minor tractates. Um, so maybe post-Talmud, we don't know. Um, 
as existing already. So this is like a nice like way of kind of delving into into historical literature to pull up a, an answer to solve a problem generated by the moon landing. And I think this is like one of the nice things about new technology is that like just like social justice, which, which we talked about last week, it's really an opportunity. Whenever you talk about new areas of halacha, you have an opportunity to to create something beautiful. Um, and to use halakhic sources in a way that they were not necessarily intended to be used before, um, but bringing like new kinds of discussions to the table in ways that are that are quite striking um, and really quite wonderful. Um, and the last thing I'll say, just to return to something that I mentioned in the beginning, is none of these sources, like this, is not a separate genre of halakha. Discussing new technology is not a separate kind of halakhic discussion. These exist alongside every other kind of halakhic conversation. But I think you see in these sources like a real, like, like a real effort to try to um, assimilate something, either something which is new technology or something which exists already in society, um, trying to assimilate it into the rest of the halakhic framework and to use halakhic language to talk about it. Um, this exists. This is true for all areas of halakha, but I think it's particularly uh, obvious when you talk about things that are actually new. So, uh, any questions? We'll stop there. Next week, I think we're talking about God. <laughs>